And so we're at a really exciting moment of our study as we begin to learn how to put those two things together and how to ask for the things that God wants us to ask for. Now again, as a reminder, according to my count, there's 22 prayers that Paul gives in the New Testament that are prayers of asking. And so for our study here on Wednesday night, those 22 prayers are going to be organized under three main categories. Those categories are how to pray for those that are outside of Christ, then how to pray for those who are in doubt, and then how to pray for those in Christ. And we're going to journey through those three categories together. The last time we were together, we looked at that first category of how to pray for those who are clearly outside of Jesus Christ. And what we saw, interestingly enough, is that there's only one prayer offered up by Paul towards those who are unsaved in the pages of the New Testament. And that singular prayer is focused exclusively on their salvation. In other words, just like Jesus, Paul doesn't pray for the unsaved's quality of life. He doesn't pray for their health or for their finances. He doesn't pray for their marriage or for their relationships. He prays for one single solitary thing, their salvation, that they might be saved. He says in Romans 10 verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. That one issue eclipsed all the others in importance. And so how should we pray for those who are outside of Christ? Quite simply, we should pray for their salvation. That's how we should pray for those who are outside Christ. But tonight, let's consider how should we pray for those who are in doubt. In other words, how should we pray for those who might say they believe in Jesus, but for one reason or another, their life isn't really matching up? How do we pray for those people who may have exhibited at one time some evidence of salvation, but now it's really up in the air. How do we pray for those people that make us wonder, are they saved and just backslidden, or are they not even saved at all? How do we pray for the people in the middle? How do we pray for those in doubt? Well, Paul addresses that in his letters, and he shows us that we ought to pray for them in three ways. We'll look at the first way tonight. How do we pray for those in doubt? We pray first for their restoration. Pray for restoration. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7-9. through 9. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn there tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7-9. through 9. And here, Paul writes these words. 2 Corinthians 13, 7-9. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. So this is Paul praying for those in doubt for their restoration. But before we dive in and look at the passage, let's ask God to help us understand his word tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the passage that is set before us tonight. We thank you, Father, that your word truly speaks to all the issues of life. And it even teaches us how to pray and how to pray for specific people. And Father, though we know in your mind and in your judgments there are only two types of people. There are those who are saved and those who are lost. Yet in our minds, who, 
do not know all things where people's hearts. We often are in doubt where people's spiritual states are. And so, Father, we thank you that you even give us guidance in how to pray in those moments over people's souls. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us tonight by your Spirit, through your Word, so that we might be able to grow in our ability to pray according to your will tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said before, this is Paul praying for those in doubt that they might be restored. As the end of verse 9 says, your restoration is what we pray for. Now, what was going on in the Corinthian church that Paul was praying for restoration over? The answer is quite a lot. I don't have time to go into it all, but if you look back at just a, if you look back just a few verses into chapter 12 verses 20 through 21, you'll see most of it listed there in a summary fashion. So at the end of verse 20 in chapter 12, Paul mentions quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. And then at the end of verse 21, he talks about the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So to put it lightly, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues they had to work on. And so Paul wrote to them, not just once, not just twice, but four times, two of those letters are recorded in Scripture. The very first time Paul wrote to the Corinthian church is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9 when he told the Corinthians how he had written to them previously, quote, not to associate with sexually immoral people, unquote. Well, evidently, that very first letter didn't go over very well to the sexually promiscuous landscape of Corinth because 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 verse 11 says that Chloe's people came to report to Paul that the whole Corinthian church was now in an uproar over his first letter, quarreling over what Paul wrote and who they should now listen to as a spiritual authority. So Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to them to clarify the doctrine of his previous letter and to deal with the new issues that had sprung up. Well, evidently, the message of 1 Corinthians didn't even go over very well because 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3-4 through 4 tells us that Paul had to write another letter, a third letter more severe than the previous, a third letter that Paul says was written out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. Evidently, the Corinthians' sins had hardened them towards God, and you could say that their spiritual state was greatly in doubt. And it took a harsh message from Paul to wake them up. But praise God, a majority of the believers did repent and do exactly what Paul told them to do. Paul rejoiced over this fact in chapter 2 and chapter 7 of this letter. However, there was still a rebellious minority in Corinth who continued to reject Paul's authority and even questioned his apostleship. As verse 3 of, chap- of this chapter, chapter 13, says, there were still some who sought proof that Christ was speaking in him. And so Paul writes this final letter of 2 Corinthians to encourage towards full repentance those whose spiritual state was in doubt, as well as to address his detractors. And we'll see both of those issues show up in this final prayer for restoration. So that's kind of the context behind what we're going to look at. Paul says in verse 7, he says... But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Do wrong in what sense, you have to ask yourself. Well, as you see at the end of chapter 12, verse 21, do wrong in terms of not repenting. 
As Paul says just a few verses back in verse 5 of this chapter, this is how you see whether you are in the faith or not. This is how you test yourself spiritually to determine whether Christ is in you or not. It is the presence or absence of repentance in your life. See, the proof of salvation, listen to this, the proof of salvation is not perfection. It is repentance. It is repentance. Ezekiel 3, 18-21 is a wonderful passage I wish I could teach on tonight that makes this point crystal clear. The difference between a wicked man and a righteous man is not whether they sin or not. No, they both sin alike. As Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The difference, then, between a wicked man and a man who has been made righteous is not perfection, it is repentance. A man who has been made righteous through faith in Christ Jesus will repent. He will take warning from God's word and turn. It is the fool who goes on and suffers for it, as Proverbs 27.12 says. So do you want to know whether you are in the faith? Do you want to know whether Jesus Christ is in you or not? Then ask yourself these types of questions. Does God, God's word make any difference in my life? When God confronts my sin, do I sorrow and repent? Do I turn from my sin back to Him and to His ways? Or do I continue on in spite of God's Word and suffer for it? These are questions that you ask those whose spiritual state is in doubt. You don't just assume that people are saved. And that's what we do a lot in churches today. They said a prayer sometime. My kid used to be so sweet and obedient. Now he's living like this. Well, he he must be saved. No, you do not assume, assume that someone is saved. You call people to repentance and to examine their hearts. As Paul says here, do you do what is right or do you do what is wrong? Paul prays here for those in doubt that they may not do wrong, but that they would hear Christ speaking through them and repent. And look at the degree by which Paul yearns for their repentance. He says at the end of verse 7, We pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Here Paul is addressing those people who were questioning his apostleship and his calling from God. These people in the Corinthian church said that Paul didn't have any authority over their life because he didn't satisfy their so-called tests for apostleship. For example, and, and I went through this, I have references for all of these if you're curious, but it was fascinating going through this this afternoon. Paul was accused of not being bold or confident enough. He was accused of not being strong enough in bodily presence. He didn't go to the gym enough. He was accused of not being relevant enough. He was accused of not being influential enough. He was accused of not speaking skillfully enough. He was accused of not being prosperous enough. He was accused of not being loving enough. He was accused of not having enough, a good enough genealogy. He was accused of having, of not having enough visions. And then he was accused of not performing enough miracles. These were the accusations that were, that were leveled at the Apostle Paul. Even Paul had detractors that he could never satisfy. But you know what Paul says in, here in verse 7? He says, I don't care about any of that. 
Look what he says. He says, we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. In other words, we want you, Corinthians, to do what is right, not so that it makes us look good and confirms our apostleship. No, we want you to do what is right because it is right. Even if it means we don't look like apostles, so be it. If we have to look like weaklings and failures in order to bring about your repentance, that is okay because your repentance means restoration to God. Did you get that? This was convicting, powerfully convicting when I came across this. In the mind of Paul, repentance is more important than reputation. Repentance is more important than reputation. This is so convicting because so often we are the exact opposite of Paul. So often we hold back from repentance for the sake of our reputation. We hold back from repentance either for ourselves. I don't want to repent. People will know what I'm like. And it's not pretty. Or we hold back from repentance in terms of calling others to repentance for the sake of our reputation. I don't want to confront them about their sin. What will they think of me? Paul was the complete opposite of where we often are. And he exhibits here a Christ-like selflessness. He didn't care if his name was dragged through the mud as long as what he did produced repentance in his audience. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Why? Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 4, so that as death is at work in us, life might be at work in you. All that mattered in Paul's mind was their repentance. You say, well, why would Paul value repentance so much over reputation? The answer is because Jesus taught in Luke 13.3 that unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. And that's not a one-time repentance. Jesus, when he came preaching, preached, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Keep on repenting. Keep on believing. The path of life is a path of repenting and believing the gospel continually. And so, Paul, in his mind, it was crystal clear, without a demonstration of ongoing repentance, I don't care whether you call yourself a believer or not, there's no evidence there. That's why, in Paul's mind, repentance is the most important issue. And there are some churches that actually teach that repentance shouldn't be taught. Wow. How does that accord with Paul's teaching? Repentance is the most important issue. It is a matter of life and death. Remember that the next time that you are considering whether you should lovingly communicate God's truth to someone whose spiritual state is in doubt and you're wrestling with your reputation. Remember, repentance is a matter of life and death. Repentance is more important than reputation. And Paul was reminding his audience of this. He's telling them here, I don't care what people talk about, say about me. All I care about is that you would listen to God's word, that you would repent, and that you would do what is right. Because he says in verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And Paul meant that literally, by the way. In other words, Paul couldn't wield, you could say, stern apostolic power just to prove his apostleship to people that doubted it. No, that divine power, Paul says, existed only for the truth. 
As 2 Corinthians 10 verse 8 says, the Lord gave Paul his authority for building you up, not for destroying you. Paul was not able to use his apostolic power to carry out a personal vendetta and tear down his opponents. He was going to use his apostolic a power to advance the cause of truth and to steer his listeners towards repentance. And if his listeners were already repentant, as he prayed that they would be, then there's no reason for him to display stern apostolic power, is there? He could withhold it. And if that made him look weak to some people, so be it. As he says in verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. (laughs) In other words, Paul is saying, I like it when we don't have to throw our authority around as apostles. I like it when we can be kind and gentle, even if we're accused as weak by other people, because that means you are walking in the truth. You're strong. We're glad when we are weak and you are strong. We'd rather be called weaklings and see you walking in spiritual strength than to be admired as spiritual giants to your own spiritual neglect and harm. And so if our weakness leads to your strength, Paul says, then I'm glad. We're glad when we are weak and you are strong. Why? End of verse 9. Because, here it is, because your restoration is what we pray for. That word restoration communicates the idea of strengthening something that was broken by putting it back in its proper place. It was a word that was used in ancient culture for setting a bone or for putting a dislocated joint back into place. And that's a very helpful illustration when I was considering it and one I can relate to rather well. You see, when I was around six or so, a young man pulled my left shoulder out of its socket while I was at a church one Wednesday night. I don't remember exactly what was going on. He was a bully. He was trying to force me to go somewhere, and I refused, even though I was way shorter than him and I should have been smarter. Um, He grabbed my arm and pulled. I pulled back and still refused to go over him, and then he gave a hard yank with all of his strength, and oh my word, it hurt so bad. Uh... See, during those moments when my shoulder was not in its proper place, when it wasn't where it was supposed to be, even the slightest moment a movement caused excruciating pain. So it is when we are living in unrepentant sin and hypocrisy, when we aren't living in line with what we profess, even the everyday moments are painful and miserable to us. We aren't where we should be spiritually, and as a result, everything is misery until we are restored into repentance. You know, my dad eventually came, and as a nurse, he had the ability to pop my shoulder back into place. But he warned me before he did it that what he was about to do was going to hurt. He actually, if I remember it correctly, he said, you're probably going to hate me right after doing this. Um, I told him I didn't want him to do this to me. But he told me, that until he popped it in, I would, be pain, I would be in pain every moment I tried to move. You know what my dad did? He hurt me. He popped my shoulder back into place. He hurt me, but why? So that my shoulder might be restored. It's exactly what Paul did to the Corinthians because he loved them. He loved them enough to cause them pain, to get things back to where they're supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, guess what our job is to be towards those whose spiritual state is in doubt? It is not 
to just assume that they're saved and just try to maintain a relationship. It's to communicate the truth, even if it hurts, because you love them enough to want to see things restored. And that's what Paul did to the Corinthian church. They were out of place. They were separated from God. They were living in sin so that every moment of their life when they came together was marked continually by pain. And you can study First and Second Corinthians to see that over and over and over again. When they came together, it was for the worse, not for the better. Their spiritual state was in grave doubt. And so what did Paul do? He could have just said, well, I've had enough of this. Let them live in misery. Maybe they'll squeak by and make it into heaven. I don't really care anymore. They bother me too much, right? That's what he could have done, but he didn't. He loved them so much that he did something extremely painful both for himself and for them. He says this explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2-5. through 5. He lovingly but firmly confronted their sins through the word of God. He caused them pain so that they might be restored and made whole, so that they might be brought back into their proper place, into a right relationship with God and experience spiritual wholeness once again. He loved them enough to hurt them for repentance. Your restoration is what we pray for. You see, there's something more important than your reputation in the minds of those you love. It's the repentance of those you love. Remember that. The only reason why you have a relationship with them is so that it might bring repentance. Your restoration is what we pray for. Redemptive relationships. So that's the first way that we should pray for those whose spiritual state is in doubt. We shouldn't bury our head in the sand and just assume that things are better off maybe than what they appear. We should pray for their restoration. We should pray that regardless of where they are, that they would repent and be restored to a right relationship with God, which is turning from sin and turning to Christ in dependent faith. And you know, this is the last thing I'll leave you with. If we really did care about their restoration, we'll not only pray for it, we'll do what Paul does in verse 10. We'll talk to them about it. We'll talk to them about it. So I want you to consider tonight, before we go through our prayer list, who has the Lord put in your life where you can say, you know what? Their spiritual state is in doubt. When I look at what Scripture says, I don't see much evidence of salvation here despite what they might profess. I want you to consider tonight, who is the Lord put in your life where their spiritual state is in doubt? Let's begin to pray for them tonight. That God would grant them repentance and that God would grant you courage to lovingly and firmly share God's Word with them. That they might be restored. Let's join Paul in praying tonight for those who are in doubt.